the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson with us tonight. A look at his new book, How to Talk to a Skeptic. Now, you used a word just before the break, um, Donald, that perhaps really brings this down into a core perspective that all of us need to keep in mind when we're sharing our faith with somebody else. You use the word relational or relationship. And at the end of the day, that's really what this is about, isn't it? I mean, we're we're engaging in a relationship with another person as we are sharing our faith, as we talk about what? Our relationship with Jesus Christ in the hope of what? That someday they too will also enjoy a relationship with Jesus Christ. Makes it a lot less intimidating that way, if you put it in those terms, doesn't it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Craig. But skeptics don't want to think of themselves as a project. And if they get the sense that the Christian views them as a project, someone to uh, defeat in a debate or even someone to get saved or, you know, an impersonal project, and that's not going to work. And so it's really important that we do sort of look at our own hearts, and when we, you know, the guy in the cubicle next next to us, we do have to see him as someone loved by God and who God wants to spend eternity with, right? And so, yeah, the, the, the goal of every conversation has to be the sharing of God's love, not in a non-intellectual way. I mean, I, I know some people talk about, well, you know, you just love people till they ask you why and this sort of thing, and that's good as far as it goes. But on the other hand, I think Providing answers and being able to direct a conversation in a way that clarifies the gospel for that person and gives that person's re- gives that person reason to believe, that is also loving the person. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's all relational. I think. I mean, ultimately, God is love. I mean, love. I've got a chapter on that. That love is the meaning of life. I mean, that's what it's all about. And so, yeah, we we really do need to be loving the whatever skeptics we run into. It would be curious to see if in a study has ever been done, and I would suspect that somebody like George Barna probably has this somewhere in his library of research, of how many people uh, that we come across that may object to Christianity or put up major roadblocks to faith because they themselves um, come from a quote-unquote former religious background and maybe had some ill experience uh, at a church somewhere or um, you know, just unfortunate religious experience that somehow has turned them off to their faith and therefore they become a, a staunch defender of atheism or something of that sort. Yeah, if my experience is any indication, and admittedly I'm just one guy, but I talk to a lot of skeptics, the percentage I think is really high, Craig. I mean, that most of the um, people that call in to me or that email me and, and get in contact with me, most of them that are the hardest cases, uh, I think, have been hurt by the Church or someone in the Church. There's, there's an amazing number uh, of ex-Christians out there that are the loudest voices for anti-Christianity. And so, yeah, that, it, I think it, it should speak to us as Christians that we need to be uh, careful how we act, but also, I think, careful how we teach. A lot of these people come out of groups that 
we're teaching some pretty weird things. And so they just reject the whole ball of wax, so to speak. Um, in, in rejecting something that is admittedly sort of silly, they just reject the whole thing. So, yeah, I, I would be interested to see those stats as well. Yeah, and it certainly, I think, would be very telling at the end of the day, as you point out. It's critically important to kind of keep that tucked in the back of our mind. Um, they're, they're going to be looking at us. And they're going to be testing us, in a sense, to see whether or not we really believe in this faith that we talk about. Um, and, and, and toward that end, I guess it comes down to this issue of whether or not somebody has a former religious background with an axe to grind or comes at it from a particularly neutral uh, background. Nevertheless, there's somebody that we know Christ died for. And so now it's about getting in there, and I guess at, at the, the core initially— hearing more from them. I mean, again, we kind of tend to want to start this conversation by defending the faith, but I would imagine if we're going to kind of understand where we're going to go with all of this, isn't it more important to sort of draw them out as opposed to at the get-go trying to present our case? Oh, absolutely. That's uh, that's key. I mean, if you go out and start to present your case, your case right away, inevitably you will miss the mark because you don't know what they believe. I mean, you're, you're sort of shooting at a target that's not really there. You're talking to a person, uh, a person that you have in your mind, what you think they're like, that probably doesn't exist. And so, yeah, you really need to clarify that. In the same way, like I said, they're arguing with a person that they don't really know. I mean, they, they think they know what you believe. And so, yeah, you need, there needs to be a lot of sharing up front, uh, sort of clarifying positions and, and getting to know each other, I think, uh, before all of the debating takes place. Now, that's not to say that you don't um, get into a, a kind of a debate. I mean, it, towards the end of my conversations or my relationships, you know, it, it could take several months. Like, when I talk about a conversation, I'm talking about potentially several conversations with a person. But towards the end of it, yeah, we do compare worldviews and we do um, debate. But yeah, I think that needs to come later on in the interaction. Let's um, hop on to the phones here and get some calls in. If you've just joined us, we're visiting tonight with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. He's got a new book out called How to Talk to a Skeptic. Go first to Palo Alto, and we'll say good evening to Lee. Hey, Lee, welcome. You're on KFAX. Thank you so much. I have a friend of mine who is an agnostic, but he started out as Catholic, and he's the kind of agnostic that's looking for a reason not to believe rather than seeking. And I could appreciate his intelligence, and we get along. I've known him for a long time. He's very intelligent, except for when he talks about religion, in which case he doesn't make any sense at all. So I was curious, what is the gospel in a nutshell to keep my message very short? All right, good question. You want to tackle that, Donald? As far as the gospel in a nutshell, I tend to tell a quick story uh, that it's all about love. God created us for a relationship. We went chasing off after other things and other people that were not as, uh, as valuable. And, and I tend to compare it to like a husband and a wife. A husband goes off chasing after something that's not as valuable, either alcohol, football, or a mistress, when he should be valuing and having a relationship with his wife. That's how I see the whole story of the world, that we are a people who were made to love God, and we've gone chasing off after things that just aren't objectively valuable. And when you do that, you live contrary to reality, then things don't go right. 
like trying to run your car on water. It's just not going to work. You can't live contrary to reality if you do things go wrong. And so I tend to focus on love and what it means to break relationship with God. And basically, I think all of the other doctrines of Christianity flow out from that basic uh, starting point. At least the good news in this case, Lee, is that you mentioned that he's an agnostic, so he's not sure, uh, which is sometimes easier than starting with a, uh, an atheist who's certain <laughs> that God doesn't exist. And I guess these days that's more of a challenge. I mean, for uh, the early part of uh, the last couple of centuries, we've seen this major shift, certainly, in the 1960s and 70s, educationally and otherwise, where all of a sudden you've made that uh, transition from having to um, uh, talk about our relationship uh, to God versus that God is. And I guess oftentimes we almost kind of have to use that as the starting point, don't we? I mean, how can we talk about uh, forgiveness and having offended a God if they don't even quite believe that a God exists, uh, Donald? Yeah, that's right. And that's why I generally start out, if someone says they're an agnostic, well, they're not, they don't believe nothing. <laughs> they do have a worldview. They do believe something about reality. And so I try to get them to explore that. How do you answer those big questions of life? How did we get here? Why are we here? What happens when we die? How then should we live? Everybody walks around with answers in their mind to those questions. They live according to something. And so I try to get them to explore that. You're, you're not agnostic about everything. And after they have sort of thought about that a little bit, then you can compare. All right, does, that, does those answers make sense? Does that seem to match up with the world as we know it? What you're suggesting here, too, as you mentioned uh, when we came back from the break, is not necessarily a singular conversation. This may be a multiplicity of conversations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we kind of get that impression. We, we think this is a lot like, and I'm not, I'm not suggesting that this never happens. Of course it does. But the I met a man on the subway one day. I said, you know, do you know where you're going to go when you die? No, I don't. And that ensued into a following conversation. By the time we got to the next uh, train depot, bus stop, uh, taxi stand, you know, in, insert location here, uh, he had, had prayed the sinner's prayer. That does happen, uh, but not as often as we would think. And generally, most of the people that we're going to run into that we're going to have an opportunity to share with are going to be people with whom we have some kind of ongoing contact, if not relationship. It's either the guy in the cubicle next door or the kid who delivers the newspaper or the young man who takes us out to the car every time we buy groceries and helps us bring the bags to the car, et cetera, et cetera. And so which case then, as you point out, and it dawns on me, uh, Donald, we did not come to these positions in life overnight. And so we're not necessarily going to abandon them overnight. So this is in a sense, a process. So if it doesn't go well the first time or that one certain conversation didn't quite end in the fashion in which you hoped it would, there's always the next time, isn't there? That's an excellent point, Craig. Yeah, we, we tend to want to reduce the gospel to that elevator pitch, right? Like, yeah. give it to me in the 30 seconds we have. And really, I mean, that's, I mean, I get that, I understand that. But yeah, real life, doesn't generally happen that way. <laughs> you you are building relationships with people. You're you're talking to them over time, and yeah, I, I totally agree that you, you should be able to um, spread this out and not force your apologetic argument even or your or your evangelistic presentation into that elevator pitch necessarily. Our conversation with author and Christian apologist Donald Johnson. The book How to Talk to a Skeptic.
And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We continue our conversation tonight. Donald Johnson, my guest. The book is called How to Talk to a Skeptic. You know, at the end of the day, we talk about sometimes dealing with with the the hardline, almost professional skeptics. Uh, Donald, uh, I'm thinking of those in the class of a uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, uh, Richard Dawkins, Bill Maher, even on that list. But it's interesting. I've heard some of them debated, or some of the arguments that they put forward, and I've often thought to myself, you know, at the end of the day, it's not only Christians that are the ones that have to. Defend defend their views. These guys come out with some pretty outlandish comments as well. Yeah, no, you're right. They uh, Not only do they have to defend their worldview, and you're right, I don't think they do a terribly good job of it. And, and often they're not asked to, which is interesting. Most of the time, if you notice how those guys debate, is they debate against Christianity. They're not usually asked to present a positive case for materialism or whatever it is they happen to hold. And that's one key, I think, to talking to to either professional skeptics or the uh, uncle or the guy next door in the cubicle, is that they should be asked to have present their worldview, to think about it, probably. I mean, a lot of times people haven't thought about it, and then defend that. And that's a real key to having a constructive uh, conversation, I think, is that you have to think about what you believe in a positive way, not just be anti-Christian. And a lot of them are anti-Christian. We talked prior to the break with the previous caller about this whole issue of, of, of the agnostic out there. And I guess in this day and age, what with uh, uh, recent discoveries related to the so-called God particle, um, irreducible design, uh, things like um, intelligent design, uh, that there's more and more scientific information out there, too, that also lends credence uh, to, to the so-called Genesis account. Does that also stand in our favor in terms of sharing our faith and making it a case for the existence of God? Yeah, I think the evidence, wherever you find it, is always in the Christian's favor. Because if it's true, it's true. And Christianity happens to be true about all of the universe. So wherever we find truth, whether that's through scientific investigation or philosophy or psychology or wherever it is, that truth is if it's accurate if they're not just making stuff up or presenting false claims, obviously, but if it's accurate, it's going to line up with the Christian worldview. And so, yeah, we never be never need to be afraid of new discoveries, you know. The truth, wherever it's found, is going to match up. And, and I think that's one key to having a good conversation, is to not, you know, sometimes we present it as, well, I mean, there's these facts over here, but I just take on faith that Jesus is my Savior. And by that I mean I put my brain in my back pocket, and I don't have to think about it anymore, and I don't have any evidence for it, but I just believe. Well, no, that, that's not the Christian way, I don't think. God, God loves uh, presenting evidence to us, and he gives us plenty of it. Uh, yeah, at the, at the end of the day, Christianity is not some irrational belief system that we just adopt totally by faith, whether or not it might be uh, some fact here or there. I mean, the ir- irony is, if we just take the time to do the research, um, we find all kinds of extra-biblical um, uh, information uh, from the archaeological accounts and historical accounts that lead credence to the teachings of what we learn from the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Every realm of, of discovery, I think, uh, should be embraced by the Christian. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, science is a good one. Archaeology is excellent, and it consistently confirms the biblical accounts. Whenever um, science is done right, and, and I guess that's the key. I mean, sometimes science is presented as a philosophy rather than a, a uh, mode of, of gathering knowledge, 
and so they say, well, science has disproven God. But what they mean by that is there is nothing that exists besides matter, and that's all we... Well, no, I mean, we can't accept that. But in general, yeah, every sort of, of uh, knowledge-gathering endeavor that humans do, it's going to line up with Christianity, and so we can embrace that. What do we do with comments uh, such as the person who says, well... I've done some studying of Christianity, and I find that there are uh, pagan myths and accounts of this sort that are made up out of the mystic world that seem to be similar to some things that I read in the Gospels. So why should I believe what the Bible says any more than a pagan myth? Yeah, that's a good question, and that's a very popular objection these days, and becoming more so, it seems. Uh, What I like to do is, first of all, clarify, all right, what parallel myth are you talking about? Let's, Let's look at the data and see what the facts actually are. And then some guys, they do just stop there, and, and that's fine. I mean, they try to disassociate Christianity from all the pagan myths. Actually, how, the, the approach I take is that I embrace a lot of the parallels that are out there. I say, yeah, you know what, there's, there's some parallels. I mean, uh, there's some pagan myths that are uh, similar in some respects to the Christian worldview. But I say that's actually to be expected, I think, if Christianity is true. Because according to Christianity, God is the creator of all, he put Adam and Eve in the garden, and then humanity spread out from there. So, and he's revealed himself, Romans 1 assures us, that no one is left without knowledge of God. So we have this general revelation to all people at all times. If that's true, it makes sense that when people try to explain reality through their myths, that there would actually be some parallels, that they're, if, they're, if they're interacting with an objective reality, and that is the God of the Bible, that there would be some similarities. And so I take sort of a C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton approach to this and say, those myths are a precursor, they're a shadow. It's not that Christianity took the stories from those myths, it's that those myths actually took their stories from Christianity. It's the other way around. And so Christianity is the actual story, the true story, the historical story, God in time and space. And the myths are the shadows that that come from that, I think. And so, yeah, I, I take sort of a a broader approach to that, embrace the truths that we can embrace with people, and then try to show them that, well, Christianity is not like, it's not the same as those myths. I mean, it's history. Jesus appeared as a man in Galilee 2,000 years ago. So that that's, you know, a, a hard fact. What but, about those that take the dismissive approach to say, well, you know, I've I've seen the way these Christians act. They behave fairly badly. I've seen the hypocrisy within Christianity, and uh, I don't go to church because I don't want to be a hypocrite. What of that argument? Yeah, that's a common one, and I think on one hand, you can sort of uh, take a coldly logical approach and say, <laughs> say you well, agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, you agree. Hey, yeah. uh, you know, we're all sinners. We're all hypocritical at some point. Uh, but that's what Christianity teaches. Christianity doesn't teach that we're all perfect, and that, you know, if if Christianity is true, then all people will be perfect. I mean, you don't see that anywhere in the Bible. We're sinners, saved by grace, and, and uh, being transformed into the likeness of Christ, but that's an ongoing process. And so, on one hand, it, I mean, logically, it's not a very sound argument. I think, just sort of emotionally and psychologically, you want to just embrace that and say, you know what, I, I've hurt people, I've been hurt by people, I mean, that's how... That's how life is, and I apologize if that works, you know, on behalf of my fellow Christians. But really, that doesn't speak to Jesus. I mean, certainly Jesus didn't teach us to do that, right? And Jesus wasn't like that. So let's talk about Jesus uh, and and see if if his message resonates. It's amazing when you think about it um, in the arena of Christian 
uh, apologetics, how logical so much of this is if you just bring it back to the core issue of being relationship-centric. And as we mentioned a couple of segments ago, at the end of the day, that's really what this is all about anyway. You're not trying to create animosity. You're trying to build a relationship, and you wish to build a relationship to share your faith in the hopes that the person that you're sharing with will sometime or someday have a relationship with Jesus too. And so when you look at it from that angle, then this becomes far less about trying to win my point or beat you down or uh, you know be the winner of the forensic uh, team, but rather to simply love a person to the saving knowledge of Christ. The book, How to Talk to a Skeptic, published again by Bethany House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And our thanks to author Donald Johnson, also Christian apologist, for being with us tonight and offering some great insights. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Interesting research that's out that I suspect if you look at the world around us here in the United States and read the headlines with any frequency, you'd probably see that, uh, yeah, this, this sort of rings true, at least um, spiritually speaking. Um, we take an examination of what's going on within the evangelical church today, and um, George Barna, of course, who's done a wonderful job down through the years documenting trends within uh, the Christian world in general and, and evangelicalism in specific down through the years. Um, more recently, a uh, one of his surveys coming out that demonstrates, and this ought to set all of us back on our heels that identify as evangelicals, that less than five of us um, in a typical church are personally involved with evangelism. And a typical church, by the way, that identifies as evangelical in nature, <laughs> less than 2% of their budget is dedicated to, you guessed it, evangelism. So when you take the evangel out of evangelical or evangelism, what are you left with? And what about the mandate to the church to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe it's time for some re-examination as to whether or not we are engaged in the kind of reach that we ought to be. My uh, guest here in this segment of the program uh, probably grows weary of being introduced as the gentleman who's the president of the organization that runs the Christian radio station in Quito, Ecuador. But the irony, of course, is that um, given the 80-plus year incredible outreach that this ministry has had uh, through radio and other means, uh, that's probably not a bad thing to be referenced to. He is Wayne Pedersen. He is president of Reach Beyond, formerly HCJB, and he's got a new book of the same title, Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ. And Wayne, great to have you on the program. Well, thanks, Greg. It's a privilege to be on with you on on, uh, this afternoon and uh, share a little bit about what God is doing in extraordinary ways around the world with the whole global shift from uh, the, the real evangelism and missions that has shifted to the global south. And the greatest growth of the church today is not in Europe and North America, but in places like South America, Asia, and Africa. And it's amazing, too, and maybe a big wake-up call for those of us here in, in the Christian West, whether we're talking about Europe or, or North America, that we kind of think that uh, we're sort of the standard bearer, the, the paradigm setter for um, what evangelicalism or evangelism rather ought to look like. And, 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 and certainly while you know we've played a significant role down through the years, God has been doing some exciting things in some exciting ways that are maybe perhaps by... Uh, 
well, by Western standards, a little bit out of the norm, and yet very much within his norm. Well, it was 100 years ago that 90% of uh, followers of Jesus lived in North America or Europe, and those numbers have almost reversed in the last 100 years, where now about 70% of believers live outside of the North America and Europe. Uh, they're in Africa, where the Church is growing uh, fantastically, in Asia and Latin America, and now many of those countries are sending missionaries back to North America to some of the immigrants that have come into our country from these other countries. And uh, the top mission-sending country in the world is Brazil. The second most uh, mission-sending country is Korea. So we're seeing kind of the reverse flow of missionary activity coming back to this country. And as our country becomes more and more secular and materialistic, we're seeing uh, God working in, in previously unreached places of the world. Let's talk about how that paradigm shift has taken place, and, and most notably, perhaps, what we as the Church in America um, and and the West can learn from it. Uh, I mean, there's always kind of been a, a pattern to the way we have engaged in outreach and evangelism. I think, for example, of, of some of the history of HCJB and kind of taking the, the approach of going into all the world and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ— in the case of this, using radio as a means to most effectively across those borders and accomplish all of that. And yet today, even as much as we've seen a changing face of what evangelical Christianity looks like around the globe, even the ministry of, um, well, now Reach Beyond, formerly HCJB, that's even changed a bit too, hasn't it? Well, our strategy is much different where uh, we used to be very Ecuador-centric, Quito-centric, and we brought missionaries in from all over the world to go to Quito and then use shortwave broadcasting to send the message to places like uh, Europe, Russia, Africa, Asia. Today, the strategy is much more working with local partners, training indigenous people that know the language and know the culture. Most everything we do at Reach Beyond today is through a local partner. And because they're already there and they can live on $100 a month, which is the average salary, and because they already know the language and the culture, they don't have to go to language school. They don't have to take 10 years to learn the culture. And with the right equipment and the right training, uh, they can reach their peers with the gospel of Christ. Even as we speak, we have a team over in the most populous Muslim country in the world, in Indonesia, and they're training about 28 young media professionals on how to own and run and manage a radio station. And when we leave, those 28 new, newly trained leaders will be uh, reaching their countrymen, and they're seeing those stations are seeing an average of three to five people a day come to Christ at each of their stations. And churches are being planted throughout Indonesia, and former Muslims are leading other Muslims to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Uh, imams are uh, becoming followers of Jesus and teaching about Jesus in the mosque. And it's an amazing thing that is happening as Christianity is spreading rapidly into these former countries that were strongholds for other false religions. Well, and as you indicate, Wayne, I mean, while the message is the same, it is timeless of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his um, substitutionary work on the cross on behalf of my, mankind that we might be reconciled unto the Father, um, that that has never changed. But the methodology uh, is changing. And I, and I would wonder what the likes of a Hudson Taylor, uh, who was so uh, responsible in the 1800s for bringing the gospel to China, 
uh, would think of the indigenous church in China today that is largely all run by nationals. I mean, we know that there are certainly no uh, no missionary schools there. There are no seminaries there. There are, uh, at least of, of the ones that are above ground, the legal ones, the three self-church movement is all controlled by the government. And yet here you are with a nation that is largely devoid of much of the way that we do, quote unquote, church in the West. It's one of the fastest growing churches on planet Earth, and it's all being done at the hands of nationals. Isn't it interesting, Craig, how, uh, I mean, it's always been true, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and some of the fastest growing spread of Christianity in the world are are in countries where there is persecution. And uh, one outstanding example is Iran, where uh, 25 years ago they could identify only about 400 believers. And today, and largely through social media, using uh, Skype and texting and Facebook and other means, plus uh, broadcasting the gospel from outside of the country with medium wave, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians, and Iran is uh, the fastest-growing Christian country in the world, percentage-wise. And some of the stand countries where there's heavy persecution, the Church is uh, multiplying in fantastic ways. So persecution doesn't seem to stop the growth of the Church. In fact, it's just the opposite, where there is opposition in places. uh, We're working in a place like Nepal, which uh, six years ago was a Hindu-controlled government, and the Maoists came in and overthrew that government, established a democratic republic, and now we're able to go in and start radio stations and health clinics in a country that was formerly completely closed to the gospel. So these are amazing days we're living in today, and God has given us these amazing media tools, uh, not only radio, but satellite and Internet and social media, with which we can share Christ in some of the most uh, formerly closed places of the world. And of course, this all gives an underlying lesson, perhaps, uh, a wake-up call of sorts to the Church in the West um, for ourselves and the enormous amount of missions work that we have to do, uh, not necessarily overseas, while that's certainly um, on the the to-do list, um, more and more so right here at home. I'll never forget years ago uh, running into a group of um, Christians that uh, were in China, and uh, in the course of conversation, asked them what uh, they felt the Lord had called them to do. And uh, without exception, uh, each and every one of these um, young college-age individuals indicated that they felt God had called them to be missionaries to the United States. Uh, What an amazing turn of events where in the 1800s here, uh, um, the likes of Hudson Taylor were traveling to China, bring the gospel message. And now um, the very fruit of his labor, a hundred and something years later, now feels burdened to turn around and come to the United States to bring the gospel message here. One of the things that uh, we strive to do at Reach Beyond, and that's kind of the the whole underlying theory of the book, Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ, is to call the Church of Jesus Christ in North America to a stronger commitment to reach the unreached. Uh, I was involved, uh, as you may know, uh, Craig, in Christian radio for many, many years in this uh, country, until uh, God called me to this work six years ago, and the verse God used was Romans fifteen twenty, where Paul said, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where the name of Christ is not known. So in our book, we have what we're calling our mission manifesto, and it's a call to action to ourselves and to the Church in this country 
for example, we state, we refuse to stand idly by as people enter eternity without Christ when we can share the good news that transforms them through the media they use. We refuse to watch people for whom Christ dies suffer in pain and poverty when we can help restore them in his name. And we say we refuse to fear the darkness that entraps people when common sense is protect yourself and stay in your comfort zone. We put on the armor of God and storm the gates of hell for the sake of the unreached, if that's what's required. Our conversation today with Wayne Peterson, we're talking about um, the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mandate here in the 21st century to go into all the world, and um, how in many respects, while the message clearly remains the same, the methodology is changing. What are some of the lessons that we can learn here at home in America? A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Uh, Wayne Peterson is with us today. He is president of Reach Beyond. You know the ministry uh, commonly as uh, HCJB, located in Quito, Ecuador. Of course, this ministry has been global and impacting the world for Christ for the better part of 80-plus something years now. Wayne has written a new book called Reach Beyond, Comfort, Courage, and the Cause of Christ. And as we were articulating prior to the break, while clearly the message of the gospel, the hope of Christ, remains the same, the methodology of how that message is communicated and delivered has changed uh, quite significantly. And and the interesting thing is we've seen this paradigm shift, uh, Wayne, in the mission field, where now really it's largely the, the tremendous success of nationals uh, that are leading to this almost um, uh, wildfire of of uh, growth of the church in, in many parts of the world, there might be some important lessons that we here in the West can draw from what we're seeing happening in, in places like Central and South America, Asia, China, elsewhere. Well, absolutely, and uh, we are learning from our friends in places like Asia, Africa, and South America. In some ways, they put us to shame with their boldness uh, in parts of North Africa where we work and help deliver programs uh, through uh, satellite. Uh, We have local partners on the ground that work below the radar, and we don't identify them in any way. Often we disguise their voices. But if I were there, I would be praying like mad for protection. You know what they pray for, Craig? They pray for boldness, Mm. not safety. And we're so safety conscious in this country, but in that part of the world, they, they just pray, Lord, make us bold in our witness, and they don't take any unnecessary chances. But uh, last year we had one of our radio uh, producers that uh, was turned into the authorities. They arrested him, put him in jail. Uh, In jail, somebody recognized his voice from the radio broadcast and beat him because he was a follower of Jesus. And through a series of miracles, he was released in a couple of months and returned to his family. Uh, The stories don't always end that way. We know that there are people that are arrested, beaten, and sometimes killed because they follow Jesus. Uh, One of our uh, radio partners in that part of the world was listening to one of our broadcasts uh, on satellite, and his father discovered that he was uh, listening and on the website and said, Son, do you really believe this stuff? And he says, Yes, Father, I do. He didn't deny it. He just said, Yes, I believe it. And he beat his son, threw him out of the house uh, with only what he had on his back. And that young man, uh, going through the streets half naked, 
at night, uh, no home, no family. There was a light on in a house, and in a country that's less than 1% Christian, knocked at the door and a Christian family took him in and uh, healed his wounds and fed him and clothed him and got him into school. Today, this young man is producing programs for us in the Arabic language and reaching his countrymen. I mentioned earlier, uh, we often digitally disguise the voices of those so they won't be recognized. We offer to disguise his voice, and he says, no, I've already been beaten for following Jesus. You can let my voice go out as it is. So this is why I think we can learn something. You know, we have social persecution in this country, and we feel we're discriminated against, and that's true. However, in many parts of the world, uh, becoming a follower of Jesus can cost you your family, your job, or even your life. Yeah, ironically, it is more of a picture of what the first century church looked like um, than certainly anything that we've known of recent years. And, and, and maybe perhaps that sense of, of purpose that is motivated by uh, results, motivated by a passion for Christ and a desire to serve Him above, above all else, um, is exactly what the Lord wants of us in, in these uh, these times when uh, there's a better part of, what, almost two and a half billion people that have yet to hear the gospel message. And we know that while certainly a lot of them lie in that, that all-critical 1040 window, uh, growing numbers of them are right here at home, right here as our next-door neighbors in North America, aren't they? Well, and that's the other thing we can learn uh, in this country, because the mission field is now coming to us. And many of the immigrants that are coming to this country, I don't know how you feel about the immigration issue, but many are coming, and they are interested in our culture. Many are coming from Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and finding Christ in this country because they're interested in the culture. Many that are coming are already believers and are starting churches, and they have come to this country to escape persecution or to have a better life and starting churches and reaching other immigrants with the gospel. So uh, I don't think uh, the the story is over for the United States of America. I think we're going to see a spiritual harvest come here as uh, the rest of the world reaches out to our very materialistic, hedonistic, secular society in this country. Yeah, and as you point out, the mission field is literally coming to us, and the amazing thing is that then God can use this as these people influence their friends um, and family members back home, wherever their nation of origin might be, and we see the continuing cycle of the outreach of the gospel. Uh, great book, and if you'd like to get more information about it, um, you can do so by going to reachbeyond.org. That's reachbeyond.org. Take a moment, if you would, Wayne, as our time winds down together, and tell us a bit about the I Refuse campaign. Well, the uh, I referred to that a bit earlier. The I Refuse is our mission manifesto, and if you go to our website, you'll be able to read that manifesto. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight points. And we're looking for 100,000 followers of Jesus that will go online and sign that manifesto. And the I Refuse campaign is we refuse to stand idly by as people enter eternity without Christ when we can share the good news that transform them. We refuse to watch people for whom Christ dies suffer in pain and poverty when we can help restore them in his name. We refuse to fear the darkness that entraps people. We'll put on the armor of God and pray for the unreached uh, so that more may come to know Jesus. And if you want to know more about the I Refuse, this is a call to the Church in America to take a stand to share the good news with the dark places around the world. And we invite 
many of your listeners to your show, Craig, that they would go online and sign this manifesto and make that commitment to reach the unreached around the world and even across the street. And again, information available on the web at reachbeyond.org. That's reachbeyond.org. Wayne's new book, by the way, of a similar title. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, through Amazon.com, and, of course, through reachbeyond.org. Wayne Pedersen, president of Reach Beyond, formerly HCJB. Thank you for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.